Hello, this is Future PMC. We are currently releasing episodes to the main feed of Radio Free Mercury, our patron-exclusive podcast series covering Mobile Suit Gundam The Witch from Mercury on a week-to-week basis as it airs. This week, we're releasing our discussion on episode 11. This podcast was originally published on December 29th, 2022. If you want immediate access to the final patron-exclusive Radio Free Mercury episode discussing episode 12, please consider supporting us over at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm at $5 or more. While we're waiting for new episodes of The Witch from Mercury to start this April, we are releasing twice a month episodes discussing Turn A Gundam, a series that we call Moonrace Wireless. The first episode of Moonrace Wireless is available on the free main feed for you to check out. Thank you. This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Of course, this is a special patron-exclusive Radio Free Mercury episode. We are nearing the end of the first core of Witch for Mercury, the the latest Gundam show. PMC, what are your hype levels at the outset? I am... Extremely hype. I think we're we're getting fed on on multiple levels right now. Everything's paying off, uh, and I feel like te- I mean I've been saying this for several weeks now, but I think terrible things are going to happen soon, and I I couldn't be more excited. Yeah, I thought this would have been the episode where all the terrible stuff goes down, like a nice Christmas surprise from Sunrise. But alas, a lot of setup. Not that I'm complaining. I like this episode, as we'll get into. But I was expecting a bit more, um, like culminating action. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that. But of course, we are joined, as always, by an excellent guest. Today, we are joined by Nat Clayton. Nat, welcome to the podcast. Hi, hello. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Now, Nat, I've been a fan of yours for a while now. I think I first encountered your writing over at PC Gamer, but before that, you freelanced with pieces published at places like Polygon Vice and Rock Paper Shotgun, among others, of course. Now, recently, you've made the jump from game critic to game developer. You're currently a level designer at Inkle Studios. So how has that been going? Was the shift jarring? Um, it, so, like, it was sudden. I... And I made the shift in, I want to say like June was my last day at PCG. And then I started in Colin July. It's, I've always had, I've always been trying this, like, um, this like juggling act where I was trying to do journalism and dev at the same time. So I did release, like, we released our sad giant robot game, Can Androids Prey in 2019 while I was working full time for a couple of B2B websites and so my time in um my time in press was always like I was I was always the journalist who knew how game dev worked because I went to a game design uni and had like worked on a couple of things. So getting back into that was kind of like settling back into a comfort zone. Now that juggling act though sounds exhausting. Like a lot Extremely of work on your plate, I'm sure. <laughs> I burnt myself out on making anything creative for like two years after we released Cantroids. Even something as simple as podcast notes, like I'm juggling my day job and something as routine as just writing a summary, I, uh, <laughs> it's like a, it's a struggle sometimes. Now, I'm very excited for your upcoming game, A Highland Song, not to press you for a release date, but hopefully due out sometime next year. 
Nat, forgive me if I sound too much like an American tourist, but I proposed to my wife while we were in Edinburgh, specifically at Arthur's seat. So I'm looking forward to a very relaxing return to the Scottish Highlands. I've appreciated all the images and videos you've posted online about it. You're, you're not the first um, American in the last like two months <laughs> to tell me about their romantic escapades in like a hill five minutes up the road from a flat. It's always well because every time we get every time we get um I get like friends coming up here. I'm always like Arthur seats cool, but have you seen the cooler smaller hill just down the road? <laughs> I wish we spent more time there. So I was studying for a summer semester at Oxford, and uh, my wife came up to visit me. As you might be able to tell from my from my face, I am I'm very pale. I'm Irish, so we spent a lot of time in Ireland. We went to Scotland, but Edinburgh ranked among my favorite locations. It's it's a it's a really cool, strange city. We um I moved back here after uni because I went up to study in Dundee doing their um game design course. But it's like it's like spoiled cities for me. I just wrote a thing for something that hasn't been announced about how it is a very specifically strange city. But it means that like anytime I think about potentially moving somewhere else, it's like ah. But it won't be secretly like a weird Dark Souls castle town. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, I mean, not, again, not to sound like the, the typical American, <laughs> like, video game intellectual is like, yeah, I really appreciate the desolate landscapes. It reminds me of Death Stranding, and I, I appreciate like, the haunting architecture, but that, that also, you know, it's all right up my alley. So, Nat, as you mentioned on Twitter, you're new to Gundam. Like, what encouraged you to dive into the franchise? I believe you mentioned you started jumping into Gundam a month ago? Yeah, as kind of a whim. I'm in a bit of an era where I'm, like, trying to get over my own bullshit when it comes to things like anime and mech shows and Gundam, where I've always been, like, for the longest time, I was always, like, the mech enjoyer, but in a way that was, like, oh, no, I don't watch Gundam. That's, that's like, weird. Where <laughs> I was, like, oh, I like, like, chunkier eggs. I was, I'm always banging on about, like, old, like, mechs that are really, like, ugly and, like, junk-looking, like, talking about playing Phantom Crash for the original Xbox mm. or going... I started my game journalism career talking about Hawken, which was, like a mech game that maybe 10 people played and had the most cursed development pipeline. <laughs> but um, earlier this year, there's be, there were a few days where my wife was out of town for the night, so I was just looking on Netflix and I was like, I'll just stick on Gundam, see what that's all about. So I was watching the, um, the, the 0079 compilation movies, I think is what they have on there. I think that's right, yep. So I watched all three of those, thought they were pretty all right, went straight into Char's Counterattack because that's like the next one that it gives you, effectively. And then it was like a kind of hodgepodge mix of everyone on Twitter is talking about G-Witch. So I appropriated a friend's Crunchyroll account to have a little peek at that. And then between episodes sort of doing the YouTube catch-up on Zeta and for a brief period looking at IBO while I was on holiday in Copenhagen and deciding I didn't like IBO. 
It's funny. Every other week we have someone new on the podcast who talks about their experience with IBO. It's very hot and cold. It's either yes, or IBO rocks, or the complete opposite, no, I do not care for IBO. It has it has vibes, like it has cool vibes, and then anyone starts talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's correct. I, I think IBO's violence is much more uh, on on theme than anyone talking out loud in that. That's, a, that's an apt uh, way to describe that show. Now, Nat, how have you been enjoying Witch Mercury so far? Um, I've been, like, quietly surprised by it. It's such a... It's very different from, like, any of the other ones I've been watching. It feels, you- um... I'm sorry, I've, I've lost my train of thought. Now, I was going to say, do you have experience with other mecha shows, too? You mentioned some, like, dank-ass Xbox games like Phantom Crash. Do you, have you seen any other, like, mecha shows? Two weeks before we launched our mech game, I watched... Ava and got mm. profound Ava brainworms. <laughs> yeah, that's my life too. <laughs> I had a feeling you watched Ava, so I was like teeing you up to say Ava. <laughs> Ava, Ava is like, I don't. It's it's like sits in the same camp as something like Ivy, where it's like. But like, I guess I think I sit a lot warmer on it because I am a. It has I'm like a sucker for the imagery it's putting out. Where I yeah. posted before, we're like. Ava is a bad show when it's saying shit like the difference between men and women. But it's a good show when a country's power grid fights a triangle. Oh, <laughs> that's a great way to describe it. I've heard it described too, like whenever Decisive Battle's playing the show rules, yes. <laughs> whenever the show is talking about gender, just like put the mute button yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I found, um, uh, did you see the, um, the so, uh, what's his name, put up uh, like a, an album of just every single mix of decisive battle there has ever been on Spotify. <laughs> and it, it, it's so good. It's so good. An hour ago, I got back from the gym and decisive battles routinely on my uh, running mix. Um, I particularly like the remix from the first rebuild film and the remix from Shin Godzilla, even though the original is fine too. Yeah, there used to be um, there used to be another Spotify list of just all the Shin Godzilla like sound clips of it, where they have like the the like flamenco guitar one or the like Ooh. heavy like electric rock riff versions, and like it's just it's just a good drumbeat. Yeah, and that's great because then YouTube while running YouTube will prompt me like, "Would you like to listen to Decisive Battle, the Final Fantasy VI battle music?" I'm like, "Yes, please." No. <laughs> All right, so I think we're prepared to jump into episode 11, The Witches from Earth. Again, we are one episode away from the grand finale of the first core of Witch from Mercury. So in the mortal words of Gandalf the White, the board is set, the pieces are moving, en route to plant Quetta, the representatives of Gundarm Inc., which includes Suleta, Miorine, Belmaria, and basically all of House Earth, prepare for arrival. You can really tell there's a lot of great visual details in this opening bit. The Earthians have really made this ship their own. They even brought their livestock that we've commented on earlier in this uh, season's run. Like, I wonder if the livestock is a practical or symbolic concern. Like, do the animals remind them of home? Which I'm sure, of course, they do. There's also the practical concern. Maybe no one's around to take care of them while on Ostacasia. Or maybe they're harvesting milk from the goats for sustenance. Um, I'm always... um, Nat mentioned that she uh, has Ava brainworms. I have Master and Commander brainworms. So occasionally 
more than occasionally, I'm thinking about the golden age of sail, which is like the 1600s to the 1800s, and ships would need to have livestock on board to provide for their crews during long journeys. And historically, Gundam has pulled from nautical history, so I'm curious if uh, those practical practical concerns were taken into consideration with the world building. Yeah, I think the this ship format is exciting for a lot of reasons. You know, Stephen already mentioned a bunch of the you know traditional nautical reasons for for being excited and you know the logistical concerns. Also, to put it in a in a Gundam frame, the bridges tend to be the place where a lot of supporting characters get time in the spotlight. You know, if we're thinking of first Gundam, we're thinking of Bright and Mirai and Sela or uh, or Frau. Like a lot of their time to shine comes in those moments on the bridge. Uh, I mean, Bright Noah sort of lives on the bridge for like <laughs> multiple, multiple <laughs> series and, and movies and everything. Uh, and, and so falls flat on his face on the bridge mm-hmm, numerous times, many times. Yeah. And then, so here, you know, I think it's really neat that, cause you, I think everyone's had like fond, like fond first impressions of a lot of the uh, earthian house members, but we're like, are we going to see them a lot? Right. Like, cause they certainly didn't do well in that team fight from the, uh, the, you know, the previous episode, but here, you know, we're seeing them, we're seeing them do it. Uh, you know, we got Martin Upmont in the captain's chair, uh, truly a, you know, a beautiful moment. My, a, a captain to really be the captain to Saleta's ACE mobile suit pilot, uh, which just really excites me. So I'm, I'm hoping we see more of this, you know, I, I mean, if house earth is fleeing across the space in a ship, they're probably in peril, but the good news is that uh, we would get to see more of them. And so, I, you know, I would definitely enjoy that. And it would be a throwback, of course, to, you know, Gundam shows past. PMC, when you're taking your notes, so you're at the point where you can recognize one of the minor Earthians of Earth House and be able to go, that is their name? Because I'm still at the point where I need to go to a wiki to see, like, what's their name. I can I can get some of them. Martin, I didn't need any help for. Lalique, I can identify... Um, I had to, I had to Google Martin Upman when I saw the name in the notes. <laughs> Sorry, the two people on the controls I like recognize one as the fortune telling girl and the other one as the like calm assured dude who put together the plan to prop up Choo Choo to get the winning shot in the in the team fight. I cannot tell you there like I would recognize the name if I looked it up on the character page. I can't pull their names out of hat out of a hat right now. I think Alejo is the most recognizable for me because he has the funny bits with the the, the money and yeah. the gambling. But Nuno, I had to look up when I was taking my notes, even though I've, I've we've come across his name before. The scene like continued to like sell hard to me. What an absurd school situation <laughs> all these kids are in. Where like even like even Martin's just commenting like, "Why are we flying a ship?" They're like they like don't they like took like ship piloting one oh one like two semesters ago and now they're doing it as like a business trip and it's like these kids are in just a bonkers like hyper capitalist war profiteering education system in a way that like is often lost in the way where they're just doing like cute little school scenes and you're like oh this system is wild yeah it really does raise the question of like what what happens to all the people who fail and the answer of course under capitalism is they're all expendable anyway like that's what we've learned under several years of pandemic they become bob right yeah or they become bob (laughs) (laughs) apparently because i made i made a meme about bob the builder apparently bob the 
we joke on this podcast. We discover like American TV shows that were popular in Japan well after the fact. Columbo, Twin Peaks being two prominent examples, but apparently Bob the Builder is also very popular in Japan. I was, uh, Bob the Builder is British. I saw. I was, about, I was looking up there. Oh <laughs> shit! I was also trying to look up. I saw a really good like YouTube edit of the Bob the Builder theme in Japanese with. Uh, oh man, Jitter Bob. God, I forgot Matt, his name as well. Girl, Matt, I'm I'm glad we had you on the podcast to correct me there because I had no idea for some reason. I I guess I looked it up and I think I think America has like this horrific CG looking one. Unless this is just like a remake. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> as far as kids' cartoons go. That would, that basically makes sense. I was twelve or I guess like 11 when Bob the Builder started airing. So I didn't really watch much of it growing up, but I knew about it through cultural osmosis. See, this makes sense because I should have realized that Bob the Builder was British because it has a bunch of weird PS2 PAL only games. And that's usually a sign that you're dealing with, you know, something like, like Hugo, like something that Americans just are not going to recognize. It's Bob the Builder on that weird PS2 home alone game. Yes. Suleta, unbeknownst to Miorin, overhears her talking to Nika. Miorin wants Nika to lead their next project. She's prepping her to take on a leading role within the company. After no apparent, so the, the OP plays at that point, and then after no apparent delays or major incidents, they arrive at Plant Quetta. Suleta helps move some cargo, eager to perform well, but deeply anxious. In typical Suleta fashion, she fumbles in the process. On our last episode, we talked about how Suleta's characterization feels very honest, like her social anxieties and tendency to second-guess herself feels earned, authentic, uh, relatable. And I think this is another example of that. Like Suleta overhearing Nuno saying useless and attributing that to her is not uncommon behavior with someone who isn't very confident and perhaps is a bit neurodivergent. I'm speaking from... like experience here like it's when like when you walk into a room hear people laughing and assume they're laughing at you when i saw this with suleta it feels like yes someone who went through similar um feel who feels similarly might have uh, reflected that in their own writing here i i wanted to like even jumping back to the pre-op scene where suleta is overhearing like me all talking to nika the way the the way the camera like zooms in on that and zooms in on nuno's useless it's like you get so into Saleta's head of like, you're just hearing what the worst things you could be hearing about yourself from other people. And you're like, you're not reading context. You're just hearing these things, making yourself like believe, just like reinforcing any like negative feelings you have about yourself. Yeah, and a lot of that's, like you mentioned, like in her own head, too, because the Earthians are like, they want to break bread with her, so to speak. They want to bring her to the collective, but Suleta constantly second-guessing herself or just lacking the overall confidence to reach across the aisle and, like, make friends is what prevents her from, I guess, assimilating into the collective. Uh, that's a strong word choice there, but I would say her just making friends and expanding her social circle. It's It's painful because, like, it doesn't, like, you do see, like, all the misunderstandings, like you see the the sentence immediately after where he's saying like, oh, this this app is useless. It's not, he's not talking about the like slip up that Soleta just had with the hover trolley. That's something else, that's something else I was going to say. 
Hover, hover trolley is a great way to describe that. I'm going to let PMC jump in here because when I was taking my notes and I saw this, like PMC is definitely going to have words about this piece of tech. Well, so I mean, the the thing that that Suleta messes up on is the I think the the like freight moving device, the sort of space, uh, the zero G forklift with the straps. Uh, she seems pretty uh, adept with this other device, which I can only describe as like a stationary bike with all of the pieces removed from it, sort of, and it has like little little boosters on it. It's really neat. I mean, you see both Choo Choo and Suleta scooting around on it and it's really interesting that like this is the um this is like what they use gundam has and like many other science fiction shows has thoughts about how do people get around in enclosed zero g environments uh uc gundam frequently has the little handrails that scoot along the wall where someone grabs onto the handhold and it pulls them down a hall that's like you know pretty pretty common one for many gundam shows here we have a you know like sort of a handheld device that kind of goes around you uh, you know, almost the size of like a large like tote or other kind it's of like bag. those. Um, have you seen these like little like like handheld like jet skis that scuba mm. divers use sometimes? It's a bit like those. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I, yeah, that's that's a good pull because I mean that's effectively right. You're you're floating, so why not have something something like that? You know, maybe maybe there's something like that in Avatar Two: The Way of Water, a film I will never see. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's always so like. This is like a pattern across like every gun that I've seen so far, at least is that it's it's so wild when they are in space where like gravity is a narrative concern. <laughs> it seems to apply very situationally where like people will be having just like conversations where they're standing around and suddenly like just jump up and float away and you're like, oh, right, space. <laughs> I just want the the space bubbles to return from first Gundam, like when there's a, a puncture hole in the ship's hole, and then they sent the bubble gum oh, out to yeah. fill it up. I do really wonder, you know, the, the one of the major action set pieces of this episode is when they sever off a portion of the plant, and I do wonder. You know, I, I was hoping we might get some shot of you know some automated means for like resealing re you know resealing the vacuum for for parts of you know either the part that broke off or the or the part that's left you know if there would have been something like that i feel like the the bubbles wouldn't have quite fit in this show but like mm, i would love to see something yeah any day sign me up for weird ass gundam tech <laughs> or just like weird tech in mecha or science fiction in general i love that shit now real quick returning back to the characters like Suleta's behavior here makes a lot of sense the fact that she wants to do good at this very menial job because Given what is going through Suleta's mind and what Suleta just overheard, the stakes have increased dramatically. Like, she wants, craves Mirian's attention and praise. She doesn't want to be eclipsed by Nika. She has no hard feelings, I think, to Nika, but she doesn't want to be eclipsed by her. She doesn't want the work wife to become the wife, so she wants to do a good job. And again, while t I've talked about this over the course of these 11 episodes, but the, the character writing is extremely consistent um, and these beats all track very logically, which is something you cannot always say about Gundam. I was so um, I was so worried. I think it was the last episode that they had the fallout over the tomatoes. Mm. It was the one before? I was so worried when that happened because it was like, well, this was always where we were going to go, but are we going to have like three more episodes of just like weird, awkward tension? And I like that. That's one. Like we will resolve that in like t ten minutes' time. But also that it's not even really about 
sort of miscommunication in this so far. It just like it sets up the start of this episode just being a constant like escalation of Siletta's anxieties that have been sort of growing over the season so far. And it's like, okay, no, this needs to come to a head before she can move on when like because we need we need her to like get into the big stakes. And the writers do a lot with a little. Like we know that they're, I guess, on the rocks relationship or deteriorating relationship is enough so that other people know about. It. Like Nika knows that Miarine's not Hi. talking to Suleta. We don't need a whole episode dedicated to that. Nika just mentions it in one comment. I think that really sets up the events very nicely without it's, again, it's, a ni- it's a nice gesture to the idea that it's not it's not even just a Suleta problem. It's that these hmm. two are both just terrible at talking to people. In the way that people in Gundam just universally seem to be terrible at talking to people, but this is like, this feels like real. <laughs> yeah, some scenes later on this episode are incredibly relatable. I was actually surprised just how like emotionally I was resonating with some of these scenes, as much as I do like Witch for Mercury. So picking up from the last episode, the meeting between Delling and Prospera commences. The two reference a lot of techno-babble and as-of-yet-unexplained lore... Prospera, or more appropriately, Alnora, hands Delling a file drive containing Ariel's network architecture pattern and says, with this data, Quiet Zero can proceed to its final stage. I love it when people say stuff like this. Look, I mean, consistent character writing is important and it's what really drives the show. I, and unquestionably, Miri and Suleta's relationship is the core of this show, but I do go bonkers for some people scheming in a dark room. It's been so yeah. hard for me to like get I saw because like this is just what Prosper's been doing for like the last entire show is all this like vague maneuvering that again it's just like when you were saying earlier that it felt like this was going to be the episode where things popped off she's just been setting up for the pop-off forever so it's like it's hard for me to invest in it until that stuff comes out but it is wild to me that she just does drop the Elnora bomb in front of uh the, the guy who killed her husband in the prologue. And there there doesn't seem to be, like, any... Like, you don't see... Dellen doesn't really respond to that in a way that is also really interesting. Yeah, I, sad to say, as much as I like him, I, I forgot about Nadim until I started writing my yeah. notes. I was like, yes, Nadim was the thing. That feels like ages ago. So bringing him Nadim is is an interesting thing here, because I, I went... I, I rewatched parts of the prologue after you know, taking some notes on this scene because I wanted to, like, check the math on some things if the math actually lined up. Uh, one of the things that Prospera does say specifically is that during the Grassley fight, Ariel was operating at a permit score six. And going back to the prologue, I think the only time we really get specific permit scores shouted out loud is when Nadim is powering up. Uh, I, as far as I can tell, the permit scores are different than the connection layers, which is the other number that gets the, the other bit of techno babble that gets brought up in, in the prologue. But Nadim basically just tortures himself at permit score four. So Ariel is two units of permit beyond that, uh, which, you know, so I <laughs> hopefully that hopefully me going back and doing that labor will be useful to, to people who are curious where that where that situates things on the on the scale. The other bit of uh, there two other little bits of, of bookkeeping just to mention. Uh, I think Delling's bodyguard is the captain of the Cathedra ship from the prologue. I have a for if you're for my my uh, oh. co-host. If you look at the screenshot I put in the notes there, 
that's the guy from the bridge of the ship and he has this he is named in this scene, right? Yeah, his name his name is Rajan, I think. R A J A N. Um he, I could not find a name on this guy in the prologue. So I'm going off saying this based entirely on the you know visual similarity. Uh so I don't I don't know for sure. But I mean, we do see Kananji again, so you know, it could be it could be another callback to you know to the prologue. And then the last note was just to point out that the this week's OP changed again. Uh, the visuals of Delling and Prospera are now gone. They are out of the OP, and they have been replaced with Naria and Sophie, who appear in front of their mobile suits. Is, is this where I admit that I'm an aggressive OP skipper? No! <laughs> no! <laughs> I was actually just going to ask you how you felt about the OP for Witcher Mercury, because I was I am warming to it now. I think I was the most lukewarm out of whoever we had on the call for when we were talking about uh, episode one. I was think I was the most lukewarm on it, but it's, it's growing on me. I think I compared it to like a... I don't know if you have like skate parks in Scotland, Nat, but in America growing up... Like- Excuse me. <laughs> We have we have one, <laughs> two. I think I had a, I had a brief pan, I had a brief pandemic flirtation with skateboarding. Okay, I was I, I compared like the opening to what would play at an American skate park in the nineties. I had no context for that; just felt right saying it. It has it has ha- like te- like teen movie bop vibes. I think it's it's like. My thing with OPs so much is that even if they're like a good song, and I think this one is solid, it has to be like a fucking banger for me to like listen to it every week. Mm-hmm. We just went through the entirety of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. And off those, I think we only listened to like three of the 15 OPs that that show has. What's an OP that you'll listen to every week? Can you give us an example? Um, I will listen to Great Days from Diamond is Unbreakable like every hour. <laughs> Extremely fair. Yeah, I'm trying. Sometimes OPs, even though they're more understated, I'm not thinking about anime here. I'm thinking about Star Trek. Like the Deep Space Nine opening just like sets me in a mood and I, I'll listen to it forever. Oh, Same see, with we, the Voyager theme. That's the we, one. We o- just, that's the one OP we I'll just skip. Start, we just started Voyager. Here's <laughs> the thing as well. And we're skipping that. We skipped DS9. Mostly because, like, the two of those are really long. Like, yeah, the other they are thing very long. Like, two minutes, like, a two-minute OP is, like, I just want to get to the good stuff. <laughs> now, that's extremely fair. I will say, though, I'm a Voyager fan, but the op- I think the opening's fantastic. But the opening, compared to the quality of the show, those levels are different. No, I've, yeah, I'm, I'm lurking some channels and not getting the, the, the most excitement about our delve into <laughs> voyager it uh, i think it gets better but it's it's you're in it for the long haul all those seven seasons as we're going back to which mercury i do want to say i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna subtweet some you know some people on a podcast because i'm pretty sure i saw some folks saying that the so the the mobile suits that in the the shadowy mobile suits in the background appeared i think either with episode seven or episode eight but then i saw someone tweeting when episode 10 came out that they that the, those they were new to that week and i was definitely like mm, i don't know they've been there for a few weeks now so whatever it's okay you could skip them you there'll be people like me who are <laughs> tweeting and podcasting about it it's okay but it's still funny that like it's always interesting to see when people will pick up on because you're right you may not want to watch it every week that's it is fine yeah i leave that invaluable labor to 
uh, anime Twitter to mm-hmm. fill in those blanks for me. I I'm curious about what Delling's or I guess what I'm what I'm curious what Prospera's goal here is. Like, is she doing this with major quotes around this? But is she doing this in good faith? Like, does she want to? I don't know, use the system to gain whatever advantage she can? Or, like, does that drive have a virus or false information that will bring Delling down? Like, is she trying to lull him into a false sense of security? Or does she have something to gain from a partnership with the solar system's most powerful capitalist? I'm very curious of how Prospera is going to burn this thing down. It It is so wild to, like... I feel like my opinion on Prospera is, like, constantly changing between, like, does she have, like, a master plan to take down this ultra space capitalist organization or is she just like fucking around <laughs> i could see her fucking around just with that shit eating grin now do you have a take on uh what's up with the ariel and and what happened to eric and you know it was who is Saleta? ah uh, god i've seen some i saw <laughs> some stuff going around mm-hmm. i'm i'm I, i'm not i'm trying not to go too deep into like theory Mm -hmm, sure theory twitter because i just i do just like the straight read of it right now where it's just like eric to siletta because that is the most satisfying story arc for me right now Mm. i think if you if you if there's a lot that gets introduced with like elan and like fake not like the kind of sort of cloning body impersonation stuff that's going on with him but right now it doesn't feel like it feels like that would be like a twist more than any kind of like satisfying thematic route to go down i'm I'm ready to wait and see what they do with that i'm also very curious about this quiet zero of course, I have Code Geass on the mind. I'm thinking about Ragnarok, which, Nat, I know in the notes you mentioned you haven't seen Code Geass, <laughs> but you have seen Evangelion. Um, I would say, to be polite to the plot twist of the second season of Code Geass, this thing called the Ragnarok is kind of like a low-rent version of instrumentality. I'm curious what Delling is cooking up. If it's something as, I guess, earth-shattering, human species-altering as instrumentality, or is he just cooking up some strange Gundams? Quiet Zero sounds too dramatic to be some strange Gundams. But it's it's such a vague name right now. It's like, it's so hard to get a read on what that could be. Yeah, I feel like the only surface level yeah, read the same exact thing. I can have is, uh, you know, I mean, so much of the concern over Gundam technology has been the overwhelming amount of noise, the, the way it can burn people out, harm them. Certainly having just rewatched Nadim's death, I, I'm well aware of how Gundam can harm people. And so Quiet Zero, uh, you know, feels like some responsive to that. Uh, is it actually? Who knows? We're, we're still firmly in the shady people spouting cool words in dark rooms phase of the plan. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's an important part of every plan. As an Ava fan, as a Xenogears fan, I, mm-hmm. I eat that shit up. I love that stuff. <laughs> Teenage me loved it, but I still, a 34-year-old me still loves that shit. Meanwhile, Najee and his crew have taken control of Ghoul's, Bob's, transport ship. Ghoul, who is now Najee's captive, asks why they're piloting desulters to Turk-manufactured suits. There is a great bit here when Ghoul's talking shop and his co-worker turns to him and says, surprised, 
Bob. Uh, cool. The Bob gag cool. is hope, uh, something I hope they keep going. Ghoul is the most. I am an anime main character who d- does not realize I need to be incognito for a, a second. For his insolence, Sophie kicks him in the stomach and holds a gun to his forehead. Naji only has one request of his captives. Do your work as usual. There's some fun bits here. Uh, you got Noria sketching the Lifrith Thorn, which is her personal Gundam. If I had to guess, just based on the archetypes on display, I feel like Noria is the quieter and more introspective of the two, while Sophie is clearly all gas, no brakes, um, and is willing to um, jump into it, like roll up her sleeves and start instigating chaos at a moment's notice. Naji proselytizing to the ship's crew is very fun. I wish it was more than one line, though. Like, I honestly, I wish Ghoul didn't cut him off with the question. I wanted to hear more of what he had to say. Like, give me that, give me that ideology, baby. Yeah, this is like you know, it's funny again how much we're getting out of bridges on spaceships. I I love it every time. Here it works as well because we're also shown that the Earthians are super at home in space. Like this is not a situation where they are fish out of water. The you know, Sophie is incredibly comfortable just running around on the ceiling, flipping upside down, kicking people, doing violence. Uh you know, she's she's doing fine. This is not a so once again, call back to First Gundam. There is no, uh, you know, the, the the space noise encounter lightning storms for the first time. You know, we don't we don't get that situation. They they are fine here. It probably speaks to like both your external statement of like wanting to hear more about like what's their they had a, they had a name their group right uh, Donna Fold Donna Fold <laughs> what like their deal is besides doing like grunt work for like the capitalists and i do i do kind of i want to feel more of like that border between space and earth that you feel so hard in like the first gundam runs in uc content where it's like it is a big deal for like someone from earth to be in space and i don't know if this is going to be like maybe they're maybe they're maybe this isn't their first rodeo but like something hopefully something's going on here I need to, I need to like, I need to like know more of like what these people's deal is. I think, I think core two is going to be the, the earth season. A lot of people, because there's been some information about like the Blu-ray release and the Blu-ray says, all right, which from Mercury when all said and done, at least in 2023, 24 episodes released on a Blu-ray sunrise is obviously being very cagey if like that's all of which from mercury or is there going to be like a, a second half but if there's not a second half i imagine core two 12 episodes is going to be earth stuff like the political shit yeah given how much uh mio wanted to run away to earth you know right from the get-go i think a lot of people are expecting that you know it's traditional it's been talked about but it's certainly uh you know i guess ironic that it would happen after Mirin had abandoned the desire to run away to earth it would it would really be perfect to do it now after after mm-hmm. this episode i have a feeling that like whatever happens next episode is gonna like force them to earth because there's so there's like so much going on in earth as well that's just like a completely open question right now i would also be remiss if so i did the question of mercury too oh <laughs> yeah maybe they'll go to mercury <laughs> 
PMC has a wild theory regarding the children oh, on Mercury. I, I mean, it's kind of a joke. It's, you know, it's kind of a joke. Why are there no children left in Mercury? It's because they're all inside the aerial. But, you know, it's luck. It's, well, we'll <laughs> figure, I, we can put that one to bed soon enough. I was going to say, though, that uh, I do, of course, appreciate seeing uh, mercenaries fighting on behalf of corporations. Uh, and I, I, too, Gundam writers, am also excited for a new Armored Corps. Thank you. <laughs> Nat, real quick, were you were you very excited with the Armored Core announcement, or were you just armored, looking at Twitter going, what's Armored Core? Armored Core is one of my blind core? spots as well. Like, mm. I think I played a demo for an Armored Core 10 years ago or so. What do you mean longer, actually? They've not done one of those since, like, 08, 09. I'm, like, That's... I'm ready to be into it. I need to, like, I'm so curious what, like, a post-Souls mech game looks like from that studio. Yeah, no, same. Yeah, you can, I'm like, very you can curious. see so many of those. You can see so many of those flourishes even in like the trailer. Like it is like, it is shot like a Souls trailer. Yeah, I mean that that shot with the you know all the the goods tied to the back of the mech, looking over the landscape. That's my shit. <laughs> I love that so much. I was so close to making a game about being like a mech courier in like a wasteland. Oh, that I would. I would Hell yeah. yeah. Sign me up. Absolutely. Please. So back on the docked gunned arm ink ship, does this thing have a name? Because other ships are named. I feel like this should have a name. I don't think it does. I think I think Bob's ship is Wormblood, but I don't think this one has a name yet. Yeah. That's funny thinking of it as Bob's ship. <laughs> does Bob does Bob does Bob's boss have a name? I don't think so. Yeah. That I was writing my notes, I was like, I'll do this later. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, as PMC is looking that up, um, the Earthians they have lunch on, on on board their ship. The typical shenanigans ensue. Suleta awkwardly tries to interact with her peers, and in the process, misses out on a meal while she watches everyone else eat. After choosing not to help Choo Choo deliver Nika and Miorin their lunches for obvious reasons, she relegates excuse me she relegates herself to the bathroom where she sips her water bottle alone. I don't really have anything hard-hitting to say about this scene other than the writing is once again very consistent, and I think the character beats her on point. Suleta's diffidence, her lack of confidence, is preventing her from joining the group, despite the open invitation to do so, and this is a pattern we've seen time and time again. Um, she also doesn't want to intrude on Mia, Reed, and Nika. Like, I'm sure knowing Suleta, and also knowing how I would react in that situation, she's probably built up at a very elaborate headcanon for the two of them, and she doesn't want to intrude. Also, the image of Suleta by herself in the stall really tugged on my heartstrings. It's entirely too relatable. Like try, like relegating myself to another room so I don't have to deal with the potential awkwardness of social interactions. I, I do it all the time. That kicked so hard. <laughs> God, it's the the whole sequence is just like so painful to watch from like Suleta's POV because like she is still the outsider in this space, right? Like, Mio is also the outsider, but she's, like, the outsider with, like, power and, like, concrete, like, resources behind her. Suleta just sort of showed up with an ability to pilot a war machine and just wants to be friends with these people who are her friends, but she's not sort of grokked how to communicate with them or, like, what their communication patterns are and just seeing all these small missteps add up until she's crying in a bathroom was like so painful 
And this is a place too that uh, you know, Mirin has also. I mean, not literally this same bathroom, but a a bathroom stall in space. You know, also recall, of course, Mirin was hanging out in there, uh, vending her stress maybe in a slightly different way because she was just gaming <laughs> in a stall. You know, to sort of pass time and uh, re- you know, re- relieve stress, if not other things. So, but it's it's funny, you know. This is a, a a place that these characters are both returning to in in moments of of isolation. That's another staple of me- the mecha genre. I could say anime too, but like communication breakdowns. There's a there's literally it's a, Ze- a Zeppelin song, but there's also literally a track in Zeno Saga called Communication Breakdown, and it's, it's one of my workout pieces. That's why I know the title off the top of my head. But also Ava is full of these communication breakdowns and like what's going through your head as you're trying to anticipate what will go down in a social interaction. I have having only seen like four Gundam shows, it is fun to see like, oh, I guess lunch scenes are also a recurring staple. <laughs> Just I, prolonged periods of giving people lunch boxes. I know it's I the, love scenes like of domesticity like this. The shame now is that, you know, we can't have the we can't have the uh the the Suleta's missing chicken over rice meal uh dinner at the at the Gundam Cafe because they closed the Gundam Cafe. You rest in peace. Yeah. Pour one out. You might have skate parks in Scotland, but I can guarantee there are no Gundam cafes in Scotland. I'm going to have to begrudgingly accept this reality. <laughs> I didn't know there was a Gundam cafe at all. Yeah, so well, they so were- Stephen had gone on a trip there. Permanently and, and, closed. Yep, permanently <laughs> closed. And uh, it's it's funny because, you know, as, you, as you've picked up on, this sort of food stuff happens a lot. And if you recall, the uh, one of the signature, I think, things they had on the menu was, of course, the Amaro bread and water from the Ramba Rao scene, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, I guess that would have been in this, probably in the second movie. Yeah. Among other things, of course. Yeah. If you want to spend 20, I'm assuming it was probably around 20 to $30 on bread and water. If you're that much a Gundam fan, I got, I got, obviously I got burgers there. They had, they sold a lot of American food there. And, uh, another Gundam show called G, it was G Gundam weekend. They're airing G Gundam while I was ex- trying to explain to my wife what all this is about. So we transition to a new scene here. Vim Jaturk meets with Delling to talk about Sarius's machinations and the growing threat of Grassley. Vim suggests that Delling sanction Grassley for stirring unrest. Changing the subject, Delling asks about Ghoul, which sets Vim off. Vim is then escorted out by two armed guards. Fortunately for Vim, this was all according to Keikaku. This was all according to plan. He planted a transmitter on one of the guards, which he tells Shadiq. In turn, Shadik orders his entourage to send the signal to the dawn of fold. All right, I, I'm I'm all about like names and like what are you going to name your guerrilla or militant organizations? I think Dawn of Fold is an all right name, but as far as it, it lacks a dynamism, like almost it lacks a concision too that I like in my names. Like as far as militant quote unquote terrorist organizations go in mecha shows, nothing will probably ever beat Pat Labor's Beach House, the environmental group. I guess Donafold is a good it's a good spaceship name, mm. I think. It yeah. feels more like it's a cool ship name. It's not a cool group name. Yeah. You're not pro Beach House PMC? I, I think I gotta go I gotta stand up for White Fang. I think White Fang is the best. White Fang is very cool. That's that's a the uh, terrorist group from the back half of Oh, Gundam Wing. We watched Pat Labor not long ago. I must have forgotten about Beach House. That's in the OVA? I, I, 
Stephen? It's in the OVA. Yeah. It's not an environmental group. I do not like the framing oh, of Beach House. Oh, we might watch the movie. That's what mm. we did. The movies are what, what you should watch, to be clear. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, now I'm thinking Donafold is a great name, too, because I was trying to like break down the, the wording, the etymology, so to speak, of the name, and I couldn't really come up with any interesting like meaning to it. But when I think of folding, I think of like flying through subspace or something, which like I could like I'm thinking of Xenosug again, but I imagine like you have this big ship called the Dawn of Fold and like appears out of subspace and you have like the little title under it going like Dawn of Fold, so and so ship. It's serving pillar of autumn is what it stood for. Oh me. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, it's such a banger. I'm I'm a you know PMC and I are lapsed Halo fans. Uh, we we I land. Oh my we, god, we, save! I mean, a lot of people we are would. at this point. <laughs> what was that that tweet that really that Onion headline that really no a hard drive headline that really hit home about like I'm basically the rest of my life is spent trying to recapture the magic of that land party I had in high school playing Halo. <laughs> that that was our pandemic. Like a friend of mine. This would have been just after Halo 3 came to BC. It was like, hey, do you want to get some customs going? And we had that every weekend for two years, like it was 2007 again. Ooh. Yeah, Halo 2 was my peak. I p- bought and played Halo 3 at launch, but I was then a freshman in college, and I was a little distracted. So I beat the campaign, but didn't dive too much into multiplayer. But I played the shit multiplayer-wise out of Halo 1 and 2. Yeah. But like, Dawn of Fold is just like in that realm of like, Every, every ship in Halo has this, like, culture-esque name that sounds really cool and doesn't mean anything, but you don't mind. <laughs> what Like, what does in amber clad mean? What does Pillar of Autumn mean? Don't care. Sounds great. I remember, I don't even remember what webcomic it was from, but because, you know, I, I was playing those games kind of in the in the height of, you know, early 2000s webcomics, I remember reading some Halo webcomics, and there was a Halo webcomic that uh, proposed a parody name which was it, it, it took place on the UNSC pretentious vernacular, and I've never been able to <laughs> to remove that from my brain. That sound that sounds unironically like a good Halo yeah, ship. <laughs> it's a Halo ship. I, I would use that. Yeah, I would use that unironically. On an old podcast I used to listen to, there was a game they played one episode, and it was they had a bunch of names of Halo ships and a bunch of names of Taylor Swift songs, and could you differentiate between yes. the two of them? Is very good. Incredible. Yeah, shout-outs to Joe Staten, because he can name the shit out of whatever. All right, so we got, we got an old friend, I guess quotes around friend, but an old acquaintance returning here. Captain Kananji, on board a Dominicus cruiser, receives an alert of a fleet ID code on a standard course to the moon. Turns out it's a Jaturk ship called the Wormblood, presumably Bob's ship. It's part of the uh, plant patrol fleet. He wonders why it would be there. It seems the patrol fleet has pulled back. All right, so we haven't seen Kananji Avery in a while. He is the Dominicus's ace pilot who killed Nadim in the prologue. Nat, you have a note here. You had no idea who this guy was originally. Yeah, this scene, this scene felt like it came out of nowhere to me because I just—it's been like a month and a half since I watched the prologue because <laughs> I, I am just like watching these as they come out and then sort of not finding time to go back to see, like catch up on them. I didn't know who this guy was. They just take this like two minute tangent to have a little chat before the fight kicks off. I was pri- I was primed just because usually I watch the new G Witch episode Sunday morning so I could take notes for like a Monday record. But of course, Christmas threw everything up, threw everything right. off. 
And then Twitter, um, like many people were posting about Kananji, so I already knew he was going to show up, and I knew that his appearance is, uh, you know, his I, I knew that different. like at some point he was going to come back. It was just like his appearance in the prologue is so much just as, you know, you're like cookie cutter ace pilot for the bad guys. And a lot's changed since the prologue. Like he's he's a cap, he's Captain Kananji. He's certainly older, probably not wiser. He's definitely not as svelte as he once was. I'm all about subverting audience expectations, provided a show isn't obnoxious about it. But I was a little bummed out because it seemed like they kind of turned Kananji into a fat joke. Like, G-Witch has been really good about showcasing a lot of different body types. You have Lalique, Belmaria, Fang, without punching down or drawing undue attention. And I feel like by itself, the show wouldn't be, wasn't drawing too much undue attention, but then the, his crewmates were also joking about, like, would he fit into the seat? There's not a pattern of this here. I don't consider this to be an egregious choice, but I'm not thrilled about it. I do think, though, giving him the soul patch was a smart choice. Makes him look more like a bit more like an asshole. I'm really curious to what extent he is meant to be like sympathetic. You know, 20 years is a lot of time. You know, people people's bodies change in 20 years. Like we're all we're, you know we're all haunted haunted tombs now, right? Was was my my body my body is a temple and it's it's haunted and, and desecrated or whatever. It kind of feels like you know, this. This could be very relatable in terms of aging. Uh, revisiting the prologue also caused me to like really clue into how all of the heads of the Bennett House have changed. Like I didn't, I forgot that the guy giving the public speech was uh, a younger Sarius. You know, like a lot of those things kind of didn't click in for me. And, you know, so doing this comparison was interesting. Like, yo, we we really get to see how the how time has passed for all these characters. Um, but like, you know, th- I think from that sense. I, I'm while his while certainly his underlings are are jerks and morons. I think this is like a fairly sympathetic portrayal of him. You know, we know that what he did in the Vanitas incident was, as far as we understand it, very bad. But you know, what is what is his sense of justice? Is is he more you know is he a, a character who believes that they actually do have a sense of justice as opposed to someone like Delling? Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm. Curious to see Delling's image has been softened over the runtime, over the eleven episodes since the the prologue, and it wouldn't surprise me if Kananji is also on a similar course. I hope for a good reason. You know, I, I hope it's not just like, well, there are fine people on both sides. Yeah, I, w- I want to say that, like, because Jewitch is like is good about like characters with different body shapes, that like the camera isn't making a joke of his size. It is like you're establishing the culture of like the team that he's leading. You're creating like, there is like a jovial, like not jovial, like a mocking almost like attitude where he is a different person to who we saw, who was like the cocky young, like wanting to prove himself like ace pilot. And now he's just this tired squad captain. It's still like, I, it's so hard to like figure out where he's gonna land, sort of as like a sympathetic or antagonistic character, because he does like instigate the one of the worst events in like Siletan's. God, I've forgotten her name. Elnora, <laughs> uh, Pros- Prospera. Prospera, yeah, yeah. There's lives, but like twenty years is a long time, and like the show has 
gone to great lengths to stress that a lot has happened in 20 years. Yeah, I like both those reads, I like both those angles. I also think the show might be going for like a complacency angle. Like he's been part of this organization, like reaping the benefits of this organization for 20 years. That he, I suppose that it could also be signaling that, you know, he's been sitting around a lot, so to speak. That's the angle I don't want them to do for um, Kadanji. But I do like both your reads. I don't know how active Dominicus has been. Like, it's been a long time. Are they, like, actively hunting down Gundams and Gundam manufacturers, or are they just How chilling? many people were making Gundams? Another good question. Yeah, I mean, here at this point, we can identify probably what seemed to be at least three separate branches of Gundam development that survived the Vanis Vanitas incident. We have Prospera's project. We have uh, the... Wherever Alfred Thorne and Alfred Ur come from, which also seem to be Gundams. And then we have the House Pale technology under Belmeria and, and uh, you know, and the, and the Fair Act. So, you know, there is an angle here which suggests that they are, frankly, not very good at their jobs. True. Especially considering two of those organizations are now protected by Delling, right. Dominicus's benefactor. Aye. So, Belmaria meets with Prospera at the plant. She tells her that she's here to retrieve the aerial. Prospera says, How nice that gunned medical treatment may finally become a reality. My daughter does me proud. Of course, I wonder here if the word choice is significant. I'm sure we'll learn by the end of next episode if it is. Every time Prospera says daughter, I feel like like it launches a million conspiracy theories. What a, what a powerful character. Yeah, the, the addiction that launched a million tweets. Suleta calls her mom from the privacy of the bathroom stall to tell her they've arrived at the plant. Sensing something's wrong, Prospera asks what's the real reason she called. Suleta says she's scared of everyone. She says there was a misunderstanding that she got carried away, adding that no one trusts her with anything. She starts crying. Her mother says that she's caught up in her worries and to go to C-Block Hangar 78, where she'll be waiting for her with the aerial. This conversation is the realest conversation that anyone has had in any of these shows that I've seen. Because, like, I, like, I'm someone who, like, does suffer from, like, semi-frequent depression spikes. And, like, the way that Suleta is, like, talking through her anxieties and fears in such a way where, like, you can see that she can get to a point where she can like compartmentalize and look at it from a detached point of view that these are things that her brain is telling herself but she's too like caught up in it to not be hit by it it's the way she's saying that like when when prosper asks her is that what they told you and she's able to say no but when I started to think that that's how they see me everything I thought was fun the things I enjoyed they all turned against me and now they're scary. Yeah, the word choice here is particularly honest. Like, this is definitely the way someone Suleta's age, assuming that we know what Suleta's age is, would see the world. Like, there's an honesty to, I guess, the simplic simplicity of the writing that really resonated with me. Also, not to rehabilitate Prospera or anything. Like, like we always say, she's probably cooking up orphans back on Mercury for all we know. But I feel like on the surface, this is what a good parent would do like which is something we rarely see in Gundam think about how Tem reacts to Amuro like she listens to her daughter's problems she's not aggressive or judgmental she is basically giving herself over to Saleta as a shoulder to cry on and also like open ears so that she can listen to her daughter 
This might make Prospera's true motivation sting all the more for viewers. Obviously, there's probably a utilitarian reason for why Prospera sent Suleta to Astacasia that doesn't involve her daughter gaining life experience or making friends. But I'm curious how their... Um, I guess I'm very curious how their final interaction will go if they speak to one another in episode 12. Me being that the, the naive person who does want the show to just be playing it straight. Like, this is such a sell of like no these two have a healthy mother-daughter relationship <laughs> like Suleta does like does just feel comfortable calling her mom when she's feeling bad about something and her mom like deals with it well she's like able to not be dismissive but be able to explain like is, is something wrong is this are you sure that these are this is what people are saying about you come on over you you're giant robot sister is here come hang out <laughs> i think to myself as I, I have a nearly two-year-old daughter and maybe i should start telling myself like what would prospera do like what advice would prospera give of course i'm joking there well have but, like, you bought your have you bought have you built them a war machine because that seems to be <laughs> i built them we got we got her a fort so like that she could play in not quite a war machine but like a little jungle gym that she plays on in the the living room her biggest issues are like not where are my friends at or did my friends betray me? It's like, where did you hide the M&Ms? So <laughs> I guess I'm the villain there. You you are the Delling Rembrandt in this household. You, <laughs> yeah, shall, you shall deny talk. all M&Ms. Yeah, what's the, what's the thing? Zero what? Hold on, I guess scroll up my notes because my memory is oh, shit. Quiet, quiet, quiet zero. zero, yeah. Yeah, quiet zero is <laughs> just Pedro's putting... Pedro's mandate really, really shrunk after <laughs> they ran out of Gundams. <laughs> yeah, we had to find something else to deny. <laughs> now Suleta's call is cut short by banging on the bathroom door upon opening the door she's greeted by an angry looking Mirin who upbraids Suleta for sulking and not coming to her Suleta floats off but is followed by Mirin who tells her not to run away a high speed chase ensues Mirin can't catch up to, to Suleta's quote freakish stamina end quote uh, the animation in this scene is stellar, probably some of the best animation we've seen in this entire run of episodes. Many people on Twitter have pointed out that um, Sunrise spared no expense. It's it's frenetic, it's fluidly animated, and doing a little research, Sunrise brought on some of the team who worked on the Hathaway's Flash film on for this episode. I assume they're also busy working on the second Hathaway's Flash film, so bringing them on probably wasn't like the easiest thing they could have done, but they definitely wanted to allocate some resources to these these culminating moments. Also, interestingly, veteran animator Hiroyuki Okiura did the animation here. I had to do some digging here. Because, uh, his name didn't jump out, but people were referencing him a lot on Twitter. But he's been in the industry since the 80s. He's probably in his late or early 60s, late 50s. He's worked with Sunrise on a bunch of projects, show, like way back when, shows like Lasner. He also did the animation on Venus Wars. He was a key animator on that movie. He, the first Pat Labor film, which uh, the, the animation of that movie rules. The Satoshi Kone film, Paprika, he was a key animator on. He contributed to the third Ava Rebuild film. The list is extensive. But perhaps most memorably, he animated the opening credit sequence of the Bebop movie, which absolutely rules. That's a pretty good resume. Really, as far as I'm concerned, you could just show someone the clip of the Bebop film, and that's like a top-notch resume right there. Yeah, that's something I need to get around to seeing, but I've seen enough clips from the Bebop film to be like, ah, shit, I need to see this. 
There's, I, I know, Nat, you've been published at Vice. There is a character in the Bebop film who looks just like Patrick Klepek. Oh, God. <laughs> it is uncanny. I'm so glad also I could share the anecdote with some because I've been watching the, you know, I've been listening to Waypoint for ages. Um, but of course, no one in my household knows who Patrick Klepek is. So, like, I have to keep that got, like, anecdote to myself. I got, the, um, I got the weirdest DM from Patrick, I want to say, like, a year ago because three years ago I had interviewed a guy who ran a pirate radio website mm. based on Jet Set Radio and was basically like 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 LARPing as DJ Professor K. And then that guy sort of vanished into a hole of like absurd conspiracy theories. So Patrick slides into idea and saying like, hey, do you know where I can get a hold of DJ Professor K? I need him for an interview. <laughs> Man, what a sentence! Also, know, there, there are rules. so many like there are so many like small touches in the sequence that are so fun. I, I like on on real on catching up with it this morning. There is like a two second clip of like Siletta using those like those like hand those like handle conveyor belts that show up, but like using it as like a, a running platform to get more speed forward. And there's so many just like just tiny touches. It's such a like. When we talk about the way that like this show uses zero gravity, this is such a fantastic showcase of that. Yeah, it's just a treat. I mean, honestly, I like if you're able to uh, like, for example, you know, watch it in something that lets you like advance frame by frame. Like I was just stepping through some of this frame by frame just to see like every little bit of you know how the characters are changing, where their limbs are going. Uh, it's just it's a real treat. And Sunrise is one of the few studios left in Japan that has this institutional knowledge. They've been around since the 70s. A lot of animators have been, like, working for Sunrise for decades, um, which a lot of, you know, so this this dedication to the craft, this hand-drawn animation is something you don't see often, especially with the TV show in 2022. Mirin, ever the calculating executive, uses her lack of stamina to her advantage. When Suleta sees her gasping for breath, she goes to check on her. When she gets within range, Miorene grabs her and holds her close. The two have a much-needed heart-to-heart. Suleta asks why Miorene doesn't rely on her, and then begins to enumerate her own perceived flaws. Miorene upbraids Suleta, asking why she always puts herself down. Suleta says she's not like her. She can't always move forward. In response, Miorene bops her on the head. She's reached her breaking point. Letting out a torrent of emotions, Miorin begins lightly punching Suleta as she talks about her vulnerabilities and daily stressors. The only thing keeping her together is Suleta, her groom. Quote, It's because of you that I don't have to run away anymore, she declares, before asking Suleta, as she hugs her tightly, not to run away from her. Quote, Stay at my side forever. End quote. You know, I'm getting, I'm getting a little misty-eyed just reading my summary. Like, I feel like this is the culminating moment of Witch from Mercury thus far. On a, on a character level. I'm sure the plot level will be Prospera burning everything down, but on a character level, it's this here. Suleta and Miorene's relationship is the beating heart of the show, and seeing the show beautifully confirm that love is honestly just the best. Yeah, like I'm not sure I really have to much to add because it is, you know, it's relatable from, you know, both perspectives. Uh, it is earnest, it is sincere, and it feels like the sort of thing that, you know, that you would expect from two people just sort of figuring out their lives. I think the confirmation from Mirin that her life has changed at this point 
is like just like a really you know important thing because you when you are a young person you you do change a lot and to have that change in such a you know relatively short time frame i know there's a few episodes where they're like oh two months have passed or whatever um you know after a duel the point is it's still a you know a school term period approximately whatever that counts for at astacasia and Mirian has changed in that time period and she's acknowledging that change and how her goals and priorities have shifted. Uh, and you know, hearing that acknowledgement out loud is also very relatable just beyond the heart to heart. There have been so many like potential routes for like what their relationship was ultimately going to be throughout the course of the show. Cause it is like, it starts with an absurd, like not quite arranged marriage, but dual arranged marriage kind of situation where you get a sense that it's a formality. There's a period where like Suleta is having a whole load of feelings around Elan. And like you're you're seeing the conversation about like, oh, this is the lesbian Gundam on Twitter, but it's like, oh no, this is the moment where like we're doing lesbian Gundam. <laughs> like these these two girls like do like love each other in a very like real and meaningful way. And I said earlier, like, talking about my worry last episode where it felt like there was just going to be this miscommunicative tension for, like, two, three, four episodes. I love that they do talk and they do just, they talk so soon and it is so, like, earnest and raw. And you see the, like, culmination of basically a whole season of Suleta being, like, stuck inside her own head with her anxieties and her wishes and her inability to really like properly talk to people and it just comes out and with a bonk on the head Mio's like I have stuff going on too <laughs> <laughs> can we just get through this <laughs> yeah I, the, the bonk on the head's particularly telling and good because I was expecting a Gundam slap or a Gundam punch I'm happy it's just a bop on the head it speaks to the, like their intimacy and like mm. the, the lived in nature to their relationship I also think there's like a universality to this scene. What I mean by that is, I mean like anyone can relate to it. The scene reaffirms the human desire for love. But it makes me feel both young and old watching it. I think falling in love hits different when you're younger compared to when you're older. Like I felt like a teenager watching this scene. And that's not a criticism. Like Suleta's and Miriam's life together from their perspectives stretches out into eternity. And I think that's really special um, coming from a curmudgeonly 34-year-old. <laughs> I'm really happy to have their love and relationship affirmed and have that because there's, I think there has been also speculation besides, you know, would this show go to earth? There was also an open question on, would they be separated? I think that's been like a big topic that people have wondered about. And certainly they were separated at the end of this episode. Does that mean we're going to get an entire core of separation or does that mean that it will just, you know, it'll be resolved by the end of the next episode. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. But I think to have, this heart to heart before a moment of separation, instead of having the separation exist with the anxiety over it. Uh, I'm just really glad for, it, cause I think it's, it's more important to affirm the relationship. I like that Mio goes immediately into wife modes and is like, you are going to email me three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> that list is very good. Also clean her room twice a week. That's that's no easy task considering Mirian's room is very messy. Mirian probably hasn't cleaned it in a long time though. Like that's not that's not half a week of debris. That's a year. True. 
Do old tomatoes smell good? All right, so we're nearing we're nearing the the end of the episode here. The shipping vessel Kashtanka approaches Plant Quetta. You know, following Han Solo's advice from Return of the Jedi, the crew flies casually as it enters plant security airspace. One of our patrons and a great follow on Twitter at d e v e underscore d y had a great poll. They wrote they they pulled this reference or they attributed this reference to a set of stories by Anton Chekhov about a dog who leaves her family, gets a new name and eventually returns. So perhaps this name has deeper meaning implying that Ghoul is going to return somewhere or another later on the show, which I think is a given. Also, the name is cool. Kashtanka is a cool name. That's why I want the Gundarm Inc. ship to have an equally as cool name. Oh, Wormblood must be a different ship then. That's all right. I, I messed up. Please don't yell at me. Yeah. <laughs> Swarmblood must be like that. That that was the thing that confused me because I I also thought that oh like this is Ghoul's ship, but maybe this fight maybe this fight just escalates. Yeah, season. the Wormblood must be someone else. It was a it was a it was a, it was a Jeturk ship, right? It was I a Jeturk owned yeah. ship, and uh, Kananji was getting the notification that it was moving in, in a way that was unexpected. So it could just be foreshadowing another player. Yeah, Alcott, accompanied by Bessie and Griston. The two, two fellow Dawn of Fold fighters depart in desulters, kicking off the operation. As the trio approaches the plant, they launch scores of beacons, which disrupt comm signals. With that prep work out of the way, Sophia and Noria launch in their respective Gundams. You know, this, we are a mecha podcast, after all, which means we are legally obligated to talk about these designs. We've got three of them here. Like I mentioned in the summer, we've got the desulter, these old-ass Turk manufactured suits. We've got the Gundam Lifrith Ur. We got the Gundam Lifrith Thorn. I don't really have too. I don't really know. I don't have anything like too extraordinary to say about any of these designs. PMC, did anything jump out at you? Uh, I mean, they all have very uh, earthen tones. You know, I think the Desultors and Thorn are green, whereas uh, no, the Death and Ur are green, whereas the Thorn has you know, more of the the muddy the muddy coloring. Uh, they, I feel like they're very like stunted growth wise they feel kind of like short in their proportions much in the way like their pilots are gotta say like the the elthrifts feel like they're wearing like their armor is like three sizes too big for them it's like looking at a gundam wearing like a baggy sweater and baggy jeans with these like huge thigh plates and like up armored arm bits yeah, like the Alpha Thor has got like like Gundam Jinkos on or something. I don't I don't understand. <laughs> if I had to choose between the Ur and the Thor, and I would um, tip my hand to the Ur. It reminds me of Heavy Arms Custom, just with its uh, more muted colors, and it's got the the machine gun arm, which, or the machine gun on its arm, which is cool. I think it, I think I did spoil myself a little bit on these because I was looking at Gunpla like a month ago, and these were up. I was like, mm. oh, okay. More, there are going to be more Elfriths because I think Elfrith was the prologue Gundam, right? No, I think some some more Mercury designs got quote, quote unquote spoiled uh, in Gunplot recently because there were some like wild ones floating around, like one that is like a huge sword. I forget the name of it is. Everyone thought it was going to be Prospera's suit or something. What's the one with the name? Some the name jumped out at me on Twitter. Yeah, yeah let me see if I let me see if I can go find it real quick. Um, but the uh, the thorn looks a bit like a crab. I thought of a crab, like a crustacean. Um, not only because of its color design, just because it's got like these. It's got this know. surfboard situation going on behind it. Yeah. 
I want to see more of the Desolters. I, I feel like I'm holding back judgment. I'm all about Gruntmax, but we don't get, like, a great shot of, like, the yeah, body no, of the Desolter. You just get, like, dark shapes. The only thing that's, like, standing out is the, like, the face lights, which are serving a bit kind of like Battletech Atlas. You've got a mm. bit of a skull situation going on. Nat, have you picked up any Gunpla? PMC and I aren't model people, but have you jumped into that uh, area of the hobby? Yes, I have a uh, aerial on pre-order because I was Ooh. desperate for one. I did buy the um, I got the uh, what was it? The Beyond Global RX seventy-eight. Just fun. They're cute. I want to get into it. Like over the summer, I have a little more time. I think it'll be a great like put on some ambient music in the background, put on a podcast, spend three to five hours building a kit. That would totally be my jam. Um, but I haven't I haven't dipped my toes in yet. My my wife is terminally into Warhammer and forever trying mm. to get me into it. And I'm just like never quite there. I don't know if it's because like the building's a bit more finicky and there's gluing to do or just like, like <clears throat> nothing strikes aesthetically to me anymore. Gundam has always as well had this problem for me where it's like looking at from afar, it was always like, oh, these are too like toy-like for giant robots for me. It turns out the secret is to actually just watch one of the shows and get way too emotionally invested in the giant robots. And then you're like, I know, I like them now. It's funny that you bring up Warhammer, because I was going to make a joke about, you know, Scotland might not have any uh, Gundam cafes, but they definitely have quite a few games workshop stores. Uh, I was trying to think, like, what what would I associate with the UK, uh, hobbyist-wise? The, the one I grew up with is now a whiskey store. Ah. The are there, most, are there less the most of them car- around? I know, I think that one moved up to the Princess Street, but my Rachel would know where they all are. <laughs> we, I, I'm in Jersey, near Philly. We had a games workshop close to where I used to live, um, but it's no longer there. I don't know if there are any dedicated brick-and-mortar game, like games workshop places around here anymore. My, um, my, my games workshop story is the one that everyone who was a 10-year-old in a city with a games workshop has which is you see a shop called Games Workshop and you're like, ah, Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> no, space fascist. Alarms indicating an attack sound off throughout the plant, urging everyone within range to seek out shelter. Prospera orders that the upgraded aerial, which we get a glimpse of and which presumably she'll pilot, maybe, question mark, be activated. Nori and Sophie, working as a team, use their beam rifles to wreck house and disconnect C-Block from the rest of the plant. That's where Delling is. Meanwhile, Alcott and his team are disabling the ports. Sophie, disregarding orders, goes right for the kill. On her way, she spots Suleta, whom she is ecstatic about meeting. Witch from Mercury, meet the witch from Earth. End scene, and end episode. I want to stop and like shout out the beam rifle sounds for like oh, one yeah. second, because all the weapon sounds in this show whip. If there was a G-Witch game, I would be equipping the fucking massive, <laughs> like, beam, like, carving torches that they're using. Because they just sound like... There's like, a, there's like a pulse to them that is incredible. They're really good. I, I love... I mean, I always love a good, giant, huge space laser, but uh, it is it is outstanding. It is... Uh, it, it reminds me of some of like the best parts of like Planet With, which was a, a show with outstanding sound design. This is what I thought the entire episode would be. Not that I'm complaining, but I thought we were going to get like 15 minutes of straight mecha action. I'm curious how the final episode with a runtime, presumably of 22 minutes, is going to balance the action with 
of character moments or something. I'm I'm prepared for the next episode to be like 90% just like giant robot action and then some kind of emotional finale that sets up part two. I guess, so, so a lot of people were posting on Twitter, like, Delling died. I went into this episode going, okay, Delling's dead, but Delling's not dead yet. I'm curious who is going to die. We have, Someone's got to die. Yeah, there's been an alarming amount of, like, no one dying right now, right? Yeah. In the team notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, like, arguably the person who got most vaporized was Alon 4. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, I'm sad to say I forgot about him. Yeah, well, I mean, happy birthday, Alon. You know what? Do you, what can you do? Christ. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I think um, was it no Sophie last week who was like watching the first like gunned arm promo vid on loop mockingly? I like her turn into full on like fangirl, where she's just watching the like Twitch stream of the jewel from last week. Going like, mm. oh my god, I love Saletta. And then when she meets, when she sees Saletta at the end of this episode, it is the most like, do you know that Twitter account that is like famous lines from movies, but it's just them saying like the movie title? This yes. is the most like, this is the most like, the caption for this show in that on that account is Sophie saying like, we finally meet Mobile Suit Gundam, the witch from Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> that is very good. It's very fun. I'm I'm so curious to see like how that scene pans out. Sophie really does feel like someone whose whose brain has definitely been affected by watching like too much too much YouTube or too much Twitch. And I say Sophie that as someone is a gamer. Yeah, and I say that as someone who has spent a lot of time streaming. Like, let me you know, but like this is this is like you went at, from Soleta's perspective. Soleta's a streamer. She went to like a con, and now she is being approached by a fan who has terrible vibes. Yeah. Sophie is watching. Sophie is re- is like saying poggers in chat to all the jewels. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, with uh, with Sophie, with Sophie, that wraps up the episode. Here we are. We are one episode away from the finale of Core One, and I couldn't be more excited. Nat, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I was thrilled to talk to you. It was great. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I haven't um done any kind of media crit in a long time. <laughs> It's definitely interesting. It's definitely um, I'm having a very fun time with Gundam. Actually, like getting getting a long overdue era in my life. I'm feeling. Do you have a show you're going to jump onto next after Witch from Mercury concludes? Or are you watching anything alongside Witch from Mercury? Um, I was I was watching Zeta, and I haven't actually decided if or what I would move on to next. So I have been lurking in the Gundam channel on the Waypoint Discord, mm. waiting to see what sort of pops up. I think a lot of people are going to point you to Double Zeta, because that's kind of been like rehabilitated in the last few years. People really dig Double Zeta. And in the past, like in the ancient past, people really were not fond of that show. Um, but since you watch Shara's Counterattack, you you watch some Zeta, maybe working through it, I think people are going to recommend Double Zeta. Yeah, watching those shows in opposite order was... Well, she was watching the movie, then the show, and also it was an experience. But the one thing, the one thing I think Zeta really cemented in my mind, just as we were saying with Sophie, is that kids in Gundam are just posting like all the time. Yeah, actually, people are going to recommend Turn A too. 
Turn turn a Gundam. As turn well. a here is good, but that that design is a lot to get over. <laughs> uh, mustache. <laughs> All right. Before we conclude, Nat, promote your promote the excellent work that you do. Uh, where people yeah. can find you? Uh, yeah, you can find all my terminal Apex tweeting at its underscore Nat Clayton. I also sometimes share pictures of the game I'm working on, which is a Highland song by I'm making that with the good folks at Inkle Studio and Studios, and you can wish list that. I don't know that we formally announced a release date, but sometime in the next year seems, you know, rough estimates. Awesome. All right, PMC, we too have plugs. Yeah, so if you're listening to this when it first comes out, of course, that means you're already a patron of Giant Robo Venom. So thank you so much for your support. Uh, our coverage here of Witcher Mercury has been a, a ton of fun, and we're so glad that so many of you have joined us for it. Uh, if you want to help us out, you can always go to the main feed and provide some feedback, provide a written response. We're an independent podcast. We are not part of any network, so uh, we're always relying on social media and word of mouth to get the word out about what we're doing. Uh, reminder, we do have plans. We, are, of course, are going to continue covering Witch for Mercury whenever it is, whether that's you know two weeks from now, whenever Core 2 starts uh, for April. We do have plans. For this bonus podcast feed between then and now, we'll be announcing those plans soon. So look forward to that. We also have a premium series of podcasts that we call a simulator where we cover mecha video games the way we cover mecha anime. Uh, right now, we're working on some front mission related episodes. Uh, before that, we've worked on an armored core. If you want to see what that's like, you can go to the main feed and check out the armored core episode, the full armored core episode, uh, which will pair nicely with me reminding you that I'll be running Armored Core Project Phantasma at any percent at AGDQ 2023 coming up on January 9th. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Very excited for that. So I'm sure I'll be continuing to mention that. Another note for the month of January, we are going to be, uh, we're going to be not doing, we're going to be backing off a little bit, giving ourselves a little bit of a victory lap. We will be posting things in the main feed. Uh, so expect things all throughout January. And then once we are done with that little victory lap for a year of Giant Robot FM, we will be picking up with coverage of G Savior uh, at the end of January going into February. So, you know, you can always get all of the up-to-date details on what we are releasing uh, by checking the pinned post on our Twitter page. I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag ban Fretzel, for the music that we use. Well, I'm sure everyone will live through this next episode of The Witch for Mercury. There will not be a single death. Record it. Put it in the episode. We'll all be okay after this next one. I believe in it.